Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. Doing here? About the Buddha's teachings? and also some from my own practice experience. So we're doing the practice of mindfulness here. And here's what Buddha described about this. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana. So this is the practice of mindfulness that we're doing. So imagine if you had uh, seen an ad on TV for something that promised to help you to get rid of sorrow, lamentation, have pain and grief disappear from your life. That would be a pretty good product. So in fact, mindfulness is actually uh, becoming very popular in society now. So those of you who are just getting into the practice, getting in at a good time, stocks going up, mindfulness. So mindfulness is being taught in schools to little children. It's being taught uh, for people who are athletes, professional sports teams practice mindfulness. Is taught in prisons. Is taught as a way to help people deal with chronic pain. Uh, so, so many different applications uh, are happening. In fact, uh, I've been practicing for about 20 years, and people who were uh, earlier neutral to derisive about why I was spending so much time uh, watching myself breathe uh, now are like, I want to talk to you about this mindfulness thing. I went to a conference where they had this mindfulness thing going on. So what is this mindfulness? So it's actually very simple, which is probably why you could actually teach it in schools to little kids, right? It's actually just paying attention to the present moment. So awareness of the present moment. So as simple as feeling where your hands are touching each other right now. Just that, right? As simple as putting your hand into a glass of water and knowing that it's wet, knowing if it's cold or hot, right? Just that. So what is the big deal? So while it's simple, it can be more challenging to do this in a more continuous way. So mindfulness is actually developing this sense of presence. So I feel that when you meet people who you may feel like are sacred people, when I meet people who I feel like are holy people in different traditions, this is something that they all have in common, is this sense of presence, right? Like it feels like these people are really here, are really there. When you're interacting with them, it feels like they're very present for you. They're seeing you, they're with you. 
And this is actually something that all of us can cultivate and all of us can become uh, more like, can bring into our lives more. Mindfulness is the quality of mind that allows wisdom to arise. So it allows us to see beyond the surface appearance of things and see how things really are. So the opposite of mindfulness, you could say, is absent-mindedness, right? so not being present. So have you ever had the experience where you leave your apartment or home, and then you think, did I lock the door? Right. Or did I turn off the toaster oven? Right. So why is it that those things happen? In the moment of leaving the apartment, right? Uh, you were not present with that experience of turning the key, locking the door, right? So most probably uh, we're thinking about something, right? Focusing on something else than what was actually happening in the present moment, right? So mindfulness is also uh, called a way of remembering, so keeping in mind the present in some ways. So I find that definition comforting because the truth is that we forget most of the time, a lot of the time. So it's just a remembering. Remembering to come back, remembering to come back, remembering to come back. I actually like the the, uh, term rather than mindfulness of uh, presence uh, better because sometimes mindfulness brings to us this sense of thinking about something, right? But actually what we're going for is this very direct experiential knowing, which also is a very heartfelt quality. So heartfulness is another way you could say it. So bringing a sense of loving attention to your life. So here we come on retreat and simplify things a lot. And then we get a chance to look at what's here. So what is our life? And what we're invited into is actually a certain intimacy with our own experience, like a closeness with everything. So in the formal sitting practice, it's this connection to your breath that we started with. Right? But really, it extends to everything that happens during the day. Right? So tying your shoe, right? so something that we usually rush through. So what does it actually feel like to tie your shoe? Like actually tying your shoe can be this beautiful uh, activity, sort of like uh, artistic kind of tea ceremony like quality can be brought to everything that we do. So not in a pretentious way, right? But in a way that's like, what if I'm really paying attention to this thing? What if I'm really paying attention to this thing, which is actually what I call my life? So here we're developing this under sort of laboratory conditions, you could say, right? And then as we develop this more and more, we're able to bring that quality more and more into our interactions in the world too. So when we go and talk to other people, right? When we connect with other people, we too can bring this presence here. So the silence is a a part of this. And I wanna share a story with you Uh, about how the silence connects to sort of deep listening about a man named John Francis. So he's a guy who uh, lives in the Bay Area where I live. 
and uh, he's an uh, African-American guy who lives in Marin County, which is already unusual. So in 1971, when he was a young man, some oil tankers collided off the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, spilling 440,000 gallons of crude oil into the water. So it's a beautiful area in the Bay Area, and people are always you know, very uh, sad when this happens, and he was one of them. So he went to try and help clean up and clean off the birds and things like that. And as he was doing this, he felt very moved by this. And he thought, you know, what's my part in this, this oil spill? Is there any connection between my life and what is going on here? And how can I make a difference in some way? And he decided that he did have some connection to this because the oil was used to power cars and motorized transport, and he wrote in that. So he decided that he was uh, going to stop using motorized transport. So at first it started with a walk between two towns that he did as a sort of commemoration of a friend who had died. And then it kind of built up some steam and he just decided to stop taking cars. So he just walked everywhere or took a bicycle. So of course people thought this was unusual and uh, would talk to him about this and often argue with him about this. And after a while he got sick of arguing with people so on his 27th birthday, he decided that he was going to spend a day in silence. And then that day in silence just uh, also rolled on to him two days, a week, a month, until he actually spent 17 years in silence. So what he said about this was that it quieted his mind. It gave him the opportunity to really listen and to keep his intentions from getting lost in chatter. So during this time, he actually became kind of a, a pilgrim. So he walked around. He actually crossed the country several times. He had a banjo, and uh, he played the banjo. And uh, he interacted with people. He would write a note telling them what he was up to, why he wasn't uh, taking cars, and that he wasn't speaking. And uh, he said it really changed his interactions with people. So uh, people would generally be pretty generous to him. And uh, if they invited him over for dinner because he was walking. He'd often have to spend the night. They'd often be, he'd hang out with them for a couple days. And it just really slowed down the pace of his life in some way. So actually during this time, he was quite a, quite a remarkable guy. He actually went to school and uh, ended up getting a PhD. And the Coast Guard hired him to uh, write something about uh, regulations for oil tankers because he had been so engaged in this. And he continued to actually uh, walk around. In fact, they called him for an interview and he's in DC and he was in California. And he said, well, I'm going to ride my bicycle there. So, you know, <laughs> they had to wait, but they waited for him. So finally, he decided in uh, 1990 that he was going to start speaking again on Earth Day. And he did. And he became, later his life uh, became very remarkable. He became the, a goodwill ambassador for the UN environmental program and uh, traveled all around the world uh, and actually continues to live in uh, Marin and does uh, some really interesting, amazing work. So when asked about that period of his life, uh, so now he, he actually decided he would start to take transport again uh, so that he could sp spread his message of what he was learning. And he said, I'm still learning to listen, learning not to be afraid of hearing different voices. 
So that's John Francis. So the sense of heartfulness is like this deep listening, right? Like a deep experiential listening to our own life. And it's a kind of listening that it helps to take your time with. So I encourage you while you're here to allow yourself to just take your time. You can take your time eating. You can take your time when you're brushing your hair, brushing your teeth, and just taking the time to be present with all these really simple activities. In some ways, the practice is also like learning to be a good friend to yourself. So good friends are good listeners. And also good friends are good listeners who actually are willing to hear whatever it is that's up, right? So if you think of a friend who you really love, and when you meet them after a long time, you might ask, so how are you? And you really want to know, right? So it's not that you only want to hear the answer when it's really good, right? Like, I'm great. Even if it's really bad, you want to know, right? If they're really sad, if something difficult's happened in their life, uh, if they're lonely. So all of that is okay from your friend. You're willing to hear that, right? Because you're being real, right? You want to have a real relationship with them. So the bringing this quality of presence and being a good friend to ourselves means the same thing for ourselves. So can we be open and non-judgmental about whatever it is that's there in our experience? So that means we allow things to be there as they are and try to connect with them. So are we having a good time? Are we having a bad time? Are we happy? Are we sad? Are we in pain? Are we in ecstasy? So all of this is part of the experience of our life. And the experience of bringing presence to it is allowing all of that to be there and trying to connect with it as best that we can. So in this practice, we start with the body. We start with something that's very uh, available, right? our physical body, and connect with that. And we connect also with this, uh, in the sitting meditation, with the experience of breathing. But actually, we can connect with our body throughout the day. So here's some more from the Buddha and his uh, teachings about mindfulness. So he's talking about a bhikkhu, which really refers to a monk or a, a monastic practitioner. But in this context, he's also talking about us as people who are practicing uh, on this path. So a practitioner is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending their limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing their robes and carrying their outer robe and bowl, so getting dressed and going to the meal, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food, and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating. So that's not on the schedule, but you do that in your own time, (laughs) flexibly, but that still is part of the practice. Who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, 
talking and keeping silent. So this is how we practice mindfulness with the body. So actually in all of these different things that we do. So just very simply reaching for a glass of water, right? Just being as present as we can with that, right? Drinking it, putting it down, right? So not in a relentless, uh, oppressive kind of way, but just in a very gentle bringing of presence, right? Like the effort to be present doesn't have to be much as much effort as it takes to put your hand in a glass of water and know if it's cold or hot, or if it's wet. So just very gently being present as best as we can. So we start with the body, and then we'll gradually start to include everything. So what is everything? What is everything in our experience of life? So according to the uh, Buddhist teachings, we have six sense doors, right, through which we have experience. So the five sense doors that you probably learned about in kindergarten. So seeing, smelling, tasting, hearing, touching, right? And then the sixth sense door is the mind itself. So what our life is made up of is this changing of experiences between all of these different uh, six sense doors six consciousness and our life is made of our consciousness connecting with some object through the sense door right so connecting with a sight through the eye consciousness connecting with the sound the ear connecting with the smell the nose and consciousness connecting with the sensation to the body right connecting with the taste of the tongue and then the sixth one is the mind connecting with a thought a mind object which includes thoughts, which can include emotions, which can include uh, factors of perception, images. Everything that we call the past and the future is actually a thought, something that occurs to us in this sixth sense door. And of all of these experiences, they're constantly arising and passing away. Arising and passing away, arising and passing away. So we can actually learn to uh, see this. So the Dhamma, which the Buddha teaches, is this about the way things really are. Right? So it's the way things are now. It's the way things were at that point, 2,600 years ago. So it's about the nature of our lives, the nature of existence, the nature of reality, the nature of who we are. So here's some pointers that he gave us around this. So there's three characteristics you can see in this flow of experience, in our experience. So the first is that it's always changing. Right? So in our experience of our body, sensations are actually always changing. Right? The body itself is also always changing. So from the time you were a little kid, and you grew to now, certainly there has been some continuity. right? But actually, all the cells in your body have regenerated, changed. Our body is made up of uh, three-quarter water, like the surface of the Earth. And I think that your uh, body replenishes its uh, water supply every seven days. So you take in water 
you let go of water, right? That constantly is happening. So we're like these sort of Brita filters. We're pouring water in, going out, right? So the contents of our body is constantly changing. And then our emotions are constantly changing too, right? So think about your feelings before you came here. You might have had some anticipation. You might have had some fear. You have different thoughts, right? Then you got here. You saw what it was about. Had different feelings, right? Even your feelings from tea time to now, right? Uh, all changing. You can't find a constant in that. Right? So this is true of every object in our external world. It is also true of what we call ourselves. Right? So because of that, there's actually no solidity to anything. So this is a characteristic of. Uh, it's called anatta, not, not self, not solidity, not self, which also is actually about interconnection. You cannot pull something apart and say this is completely and totally separate, right? We're all connected in this web and connected through our physical experience, through the air that we're sharing and breathing energetically, right? And so then the third one is uh, dukkha which is uh, variously translated as stressful, unsatisfactoriness, suffering. So dukkha. So what's, what is it that's dukkha? So there are obvious things that are painful. Birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair. Also, being forced to be with that which you don't like is unsatisfactory, is stressful, is dukkha. And being separated from that which you love is also stressful and difficult. Not getting what you want is difficult. So these last ones, probably you've had this experience on this retreat, so associating with things that you don't like. So that could be either things that arise in your mind. I want to have a different experience. I wanted it to be more peaceful. It could be about who ends up sitting next to you at lunch. Didn't want that person to sit there. Right? It could be about the bugs that you encounter in the uh, external world. Right? So it's difficult for us because life is constantly changing. Our experience is constantly changing. Our mind experience is changing. Our body is changing. And while there seems to be some influence that can be had on this, a lot of it seems to be largely out of our control. So there's this flow of experience that happens. And the trouble is we get snagged on things, right? We get snagged on different things that happen. So stuff happens that we like and we want it to stay. But since everything's impermanent, it's not going to stay. Stuff happens that we don't like, we take it to be solid, and we put a lot of energy into pushing away, protecting, destroying, hating that experience, right? So also, this is, comes from uh, not seeing clearly about the way things are, right? So the result is that then we, we spend a lot of time basically moving towards or moving away from things, lurching this way, lurching that way. So if we train our mind 
the mind can actually be steady with whatever is arising. These things can just arise and pass away, just like the sound of the bell arises and passes away. Everything can come and go, just in its own way, and our life can flow along smoothly. So smoothly does not mean that everything will actually be perfect. So because we have physical body, physical body is subject to getting old, subject to mosquito bites, subject to being cold, rain, this and that. Right? So it's actually that that will not change when you're an enlightened person. But your relationship to that experience will change. So the mind will no longer be there, adding what's often called the, the second arrow. So if we have pain in the body, it's like we're hit with one arrow. And then we add a second arrow by trying to push it away, perseverating, making up stories about it, resisting, this and that, right? So we shoot also the second arrow. So our minds right now are are largely untrained, we could say, right? So you may notice this when you sit down. And it seems like an easy task when you sit down and pay attention to your breath. That sounds pretty simple, right? If you tell someone that's what we're going to do, they're like, oh, I could do that. But then what happens? So one of the things that often happens is that the mind gets lost in thought. And the mind habitually does this. Uh, And then we remember at some point, and then we come back. So what we're doing in this first part of the retreat, in just trying to come back to the breath in our sitting meditation, is actually kind of like trying to train a puppy. So you're trying to train a puppy to sit, and then the puppy keeps getting wind of a squirrel over there, wants to run over there, right? You come back, sit, right? The puppy uh, smells something, wants to go over there. Like, okay, come back, sit, right? Puppy has an itch, 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 itch. Okay, sit, right? Puppy wants to roll around, like, okay, sit, right? So you notice this is happening with your mind, right? (laughs) So we're training the mind to be steady with something. It's constantly being pulled this way and that, Right. And we're losing that sense of presence and steadiness. So this is not something that we need to hate about our mind. It's just something about the way things are right now for the mind that's untrained and that has not developed all of the wisdom that it could. But all of us have the potential to develop this wisdom and steadiness. So another dog uh, analogy, my uh, friend's got a, a puppy and uh, it's a very cute, fluffy puppy. And uh, they didn't fence in their yard for this dog. So I was like, aren't you afraid that the dog's going to run away? And uh, my friend said, no, this dog is kind of like a pack-oriented dog. So he kind of thinks that we're like his pack. So he likes to hang out with us and watch over us and you know, make sure we're uh, together. But if you get a different kind of dog, like a, a beagle or a bloodhound or something like that, like those dogs, if they smell something, they're like off. And they'll just go for miles following a scent. And it's not that they don't love you. It's not that they're not loyal. But that's just their thing. You know, The scent comes, and they're like, gone. Right? So this is really like our minds at this point. Right? <laughs> the scent comes up of something, and mind is gone. Right? So it's not to hate it. This is just at the moment. Uh, it's uh, untrained uh, nature. Right? But uh, the training can take some uh, trouble. So to be very patient. So the practice takes a lot of patience and taking a lot of kindness, like you would with a puppy. Right? 
So no need to beat the puppy. No need to hate the puppy, right? Just keep being, you know, patient, persistence, loving persistence. So what else do we find with our mind? So one thing you might notice is that the mind can create trouble. So as puppies can too. So you're sitting here breathing quietly, minding your own business seemingly. Doesn't seem like anything is bothering you, right? And then some thought arises of something that might happen in the future, might happen. What if it starts to rain tomorrow? What if it rains tomorrow and then it rains all week? What if I can't go outside anymore? What am I going to do if I can't go outside anymore? What's it going to be like if it's cold, right? So we kind of get on these trains, these trips, and uh, the mind basically paints itself a picture. And it's like this uh, story of someone who goes into a cave and paints a picture of a tiger and then gets scared of it and runs away. Right? So we're painting a picture with these thoughts of something that might happen, potentially happen, like looking for trouble, digging for trouble, right? Quietly sitting here breathing, and then scaring ourselves, like making trouble. The mind is like this problem machine in some ways, right? So just to be aware of it, you know, as much as possible just to be aware, these thoughts, they come, they go, they're conditioned. They come and go, right? So conditioned means that largely they're like, have become the product of different experiences, right? So I was just on retreat at the uh, forest refuge for three weeks I mentioned. And um, I noticed uh, in the beginning when I'd go back to my little room, this thought would arise in my mind, I wonder if I have any messages. And uh, then, of course I don't have any messages. I'm on retreat and I don't have a phone. I don't have an answering machine. I don't have email. I'm in silence and nobody's calling me, so. So it's unlikely. I don't have any messages. But you know, this thought, it, even though I knew that, the next time I come to our room, the thought would arise. I wonder if I have any messages. You know? <laughs> I think this happened several days before the mind uh, let that go. But it's just to see that. And I noticed, like, oh, you know, this is actually this thought that arises when I go home, right? Uh, so maybe I feel comfortable here. I feel like I'm going home to my little room here. And then, ah, any messages, right? It just comes and it goes, right? Another thing you might notice when you observe your mind left to its own devices is that actually a lot of the thoughts that we have are largely self-involved, right? So part of this picture that we paint of the world is this world in which we are the star character in the center of the universe. And guess what? Everyone else is in the center of their universe too. So I remember uh, being in the meditation hall and uh, one guy uh, who sat kind of in my vicinity, not even close to me, but maybe five rows away, he moved his seat. And a thought arose in my mind, that guy moved because of me. (laughs) Now there is no evidence whatsoever that his moving had anything to do with me whatsoever. But mind was ready to make that be very self-referential immediately. So you can catch these thoughts as they arise and just see them, right? But sometimes we don't, and then we get uh, spun out on them for a while. So Larry was actually my next door neighbor on this retreat for uh, three weeks, uh, which was very nice. So sometimes I'd be walking down the hall and I'd see Larry, 
and just thought would arise Larry. Right? I'd feel happy or something like that. As soon as I see Larry and I'd notice his shirt, I'd be like, oh, nice shirt. Right. <laughs> so I actually have some admiration for Larry's meditation wardrobe. <laughs> so sometimes I just notice that and, uh, and see that. But then sometimes uh, I would see how this would quickly turn again into self-involvement. It could just be like, oh, nice, pleasant, pleasant visual experience. Right? It would be like, nice shirt. Larry has good meditation clothes. Why don't I have good meditation clothes? <laughs> I've been practicing meditation for 20 years, and I still don't have a meditation wardrobe. <laughs> What's wrong with me, right? Uh, on one side, but then it's interesting to see that on some, some days it would come up this, and then why don't I have a meditation wardrobe? And then it would go the other direction. So sometimes it would go like, oh, it's good to have meditation. That's good, yeah. Sometimes you go, it's so pretentious to have a meditation wardrobe. <laughs> Why can't people wear regular clothes? What's that? <laughs> so, you know, the mind is just pick something up and then go this way, go that way. You know. you just see that, see that arise. And, uh, I still haven't solved that, by the way. So, you know. <laughs> that is the interesting thing, too, is to see the repetitiveness. So actually, this thought about the meditation wardrobe has come up for me on retreat before, uh, you know, probably 10 to 15 times with no resolution, right? But this pattern of mind comes up, right? So we're actually repeating these patterns of mind. They're conditioned patterns of mind. So it's very interesting to see this too. Uh, I've, I've practiced at this center for uh, many years, uh, not as much over the last um, 10 years since I moved to California. But I've done a bunch of long retreats uh, here. And you know, there's this walk that's like the loop, right? Where you walk around this whole long block, you pass the pond, three mile loop. So having gone on many retreats and walked this uh, loop a lot, it's very interesting because I noticed you know, the body is doing this loop, but the mind is actually also doing a loop too. You know? So there are many patterns of mind that are repeating. And all of us have particular ones that may be particularly uh, catchy for us in some way. So it could be like, she loves me, she loves me not. right? But insert photo here of you know latest uh, object for that. right? Or it could be like, uh, I'm mad at that person, betrayal, or something like that, right? Again, insert photo here for who the object of that would be, right? Uh, so the mind does these loops, you know, and when you pay attention, you can see it's these patterns of mind, which are actually largely impersonal, right? But we take them to be true, personal, like absolutely uh, the way things are. In actuality, if your thoughts were the way things are, and if you could control your thoughts, right? Wouldn't you, if you wanted to just sit here and pay attention to yourself, breathe and be quiet, be able to do that, right? So in fact, the fact that we can't do that is a sign that thoughts are not actually in our control in some way. They arise, they pass away, right? They come. Where do they come from, right? We're not ordering them up, right? You didn't fill out the menu sheet or order them online, come, right? They're just arising, right? They're just coming here. and. Uh, so what we can do is just be with them in the same way that actually you could ring the bell. The sound of the bell could arise, the sound of the bell could be there, the sound of the bell could pass away. Right? So thoughts can arise, thoughts can be there, thoughts could pass away. So mindfulness can help us to bring some sense of presence and to see that thoughts are not actually ourself in some way. Thoughts are all coming and going, they're changing, right? 
and then actually believing them to be ourselves and trying to latch onto them, trying to cling to them, is a good recipe for suffering. So this practice is called insight meditation. And you might find in the practice that you actually get a lot of insight. But oftentimes, the beginning of the practice, a lot of the insight is actually bad news, it seems. So things that you maybe didn't want to see, right? So you sit here, and then these memories come up from something that happened a long time ago, right? Or something that happened a short time ago that you like to think that you forgave the person for. You like to think that you forgot about, right? But the fact that the memories are coming up and dogging you, right? There's some residue there, right? Or something comes up, and we see ourselves being very aggressive, or this impulse for uh, jealousy coming up. And we don't want to see that. It doesn't jive with our self-image of ourselves. I am a spiritual person. I am not a jealous person, right? I am not an aggressive person. I am very spiritual. I'm on a silent meditation retreat, right? (laughs) See how quiet and mindful I am? How can this be? But the truth is, all this stuff just comes, right? And the first part, the first step for ourselves is actually, can we open to this? Can we let go of that idea of who we think we are? and actually be present with what's here. So part of the uh, blessing of the silence is that you get a chance to not have to constantly project yourself, project your self-image, or to have other people project something on you that you have to then uh, negotiate with. So you get to see, like, who am I? Who am I when people don't know my name, per se? Right? Who am I when my story is not being projected out there? Who am I when I take away all these different ideas about who I am? Can I see what's really there beyond my ideas of who I am, behind my ideas about what life is? So this practice of mindfulness can help us to connect with that. So when I go on retreat, one of the things that I like to do is to sort of make a little pact with myself that I cannot be as honest as I can with myself. Regardless of what I feel like, oh, I'm gonna, am I going to tell the teacher this, or am I going to tell my friends this afterwards, or something like that? It's like I want to be as honest as I can with myself. Right? I want to see what's really here. I want to be as close to my experience as I can. Right? So this is also a characteristic of true friendship. So the mind is like a, a, a place in which thoughts go through like many different trains, right? And you might find that what happens in the beginning is that basically you get on any train that comes through. And you don't know where that train is going, but you get on the train, and then 15 minutes later you find yourself in third grade right, math class. Right? <laughs> or a different train comes through, and you find yourself in sexual fantasy. Right? Right? Or a different th- train comes through, uh, and you find yourself in great doubt. Right? Different train comes through, you find yourself in vacation planning, right? Right. So some of the trains are going to places that are places that lead towards this goal of happiness, of peace, of happiness that's beyond any changing condition, right, in the moment. And some of the trains are going to places that are leading towards uh, sorrow, sadness, 
difficulty, despair. But we get on every train, right? We haven't learned to read the, tra the train signs yet to see which train is going where, right? So with the practice of mindfulness, you actually can learn to be steady on the platform. Right? So these thought trains can come by, and you can read the sign. Like you can know which, one, which way this one's going. All right, here's the hatred train coming by. Oh, right. Do I want to get on that train? Right, let, let the one go. Right. Oh, here's the, here's the uh, compassion train. All right, I'll get on the compassion train. Let that go. All right. See the compassion train. So in the beginning, it's difficult because uh, we're learning how to read in some ways. We're learning how to read what's going on, right? So I spent some time practicing here, and then I went to um, Sri Lanka, which is where my family is originally uh, from, and spent time in a monastery there and in some practice centers for about a year and a half. And uh, my family's from Sri Lanka, but I was born and raised here, so I didn't know how to uh, read and write the language of Sinhalese before I got there too well. I knew a little bit. So but I was taking buses different places, so I had to learn how to uh, read. So in the beginning, I was very slow at reading. So the bus would come by, and you have to decide if you want to hail the bus or not. right? So I'd be reading like, ka, la, <laughs> bus was gone. <laughs> so the next time the bus would come, you know, so it would happen, and sometimes I would miss the bus, sometimes I'd hail the wrong bus, you know. But after a while, I started to be able to read faster, and then I'd be able to see, like, okay, this is the bus that I want, hail that bus, this bus I don't want, let that bus go, right? So same with being in this train station of your mind, right? So we start to, with practice, and with this sense of presence and mindfulness, start to read both our body and our mind of what is this, what is this here? I go, this is thought. This is what this is about. This is an emotion. What is this emotion? This is a body sensation, right? What is this like? Right. So we learn to read better and better. So what happens in our mind is that you know the consciousness is connecting with these objects, and actually it really is this uh, just purity of experience that's flowing on. And yet, you know, as I say, there's this way in which the mind moves towards and away from things, right? And it's almost as if there's like a virus in our system, right? The computer virus that's going on, right? So mindfulness, mindfulness and the wisdom that it develops is really like antivirus program in your consciousness, right? So as we pay attention more and as we connect more to the way things are, it really is like sort of clearing out some of these uh, things that are like floating around, just like you might do in a computer, right? I don't know how it works in the computer, but you know, it seems to. So mindfulness is like that. It's like putting a, a positive antivirus program on your mind. The other thing that happens, which is positive, is that you actually get more moments in some ways. Right? You get more present. You get more moments. So it could be that uh, before it's like, say you're seeing this glass of water here. And you get three pictures of it. So one picture is it's actually on this. Uh, it's resting here. The second one, it's falling in midair. And the third one, it's already on the ground. The glass is broken. The water's everywhere. Right. So in that sequence of glass on table, glass in midair, glass on the ground, like what can you do about it? Right. So you see it on the table. That's good. It's on the table. See it in midair. Uh-oh. But the next picture you get, it's already broken. Right. So with mindfulness, you actually get many more pictures in some ways. 
So you get like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. So you kind of the slow-mo of it. You get all those different pictures. So there actually are many more potential moments for you to intervene in that and catch the glass, right? And those moments are there all the time, but actually we get only three pictures because we're like here, one, and then we're like, I wonder what's for lunch, two, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I wonder if I should move my knee. Boom. You know, so, uh, so it's like that, right? So we, so we get these moments, more moments back in which then we can actually take appropriate action. And this is true of our lives. We can actually take appropriate action. Uh, we can decide what to do, right? Otherwise, there are these things that happen in our life, and we're like, how did that happen? How did that relationship end? It was there, and then it was about to be broken, and then it was over. What happened, right? So, you know, lack of being present you know, helped us to miss a lot of these pieces in between, right? For ourselves and then for other people too, right? So we can bring that presence to our connections to others. Mindfulness also does not actually make you passive, right? But it helps you to know with wisdom what is a helpful, skillful action to take. So for those of us who are trying to make positive change in the world, Right. It is a very helpful thing to be able to see what's the best train to get on to get to this action. Right. So not be dragged about all over the countryside and all these different trains. Right. So the more that we let go of this, these are able to see thoughts of as, as what they are and actually let go of these thoughts of self-involvement, right? these sort of fictitious uh, sort of the press office that create, needs to constantly create ourself. Right? the more space we have to actually be here to see what's really happening in our own experience, right? And also to see what's happening uh, for others, to see what's happening in the world, right? So another tech metaphor is it's kind of as if you uh, are plugged in with the you know, dial-up speed and then you get DSL, right? So mindfulness will help you to connect with DSL, right? You get more moments, you get more information, uh, you get to be more present. So I encourage you to actually try to enjoy your time here. So it's, it's a strange situation, certainly, not talking to people, being here you know, uh, on retreat, sitting and walking. Sometimes it does feel like dog obedience school, right, with that schedule, sit and walk, right? Uh, <laughs> but you know, actually, there's a beauty in the simplicity of what we're doing here. There's a real beauty of being able to connect to whatever it is that's here, which I find includes even the difficult states. So loneliness, for example, can actually be a very poignant and touching thing to be able to connect with. So when we identify with different states and say that this is me, this is mine, uh, as opposed to just seeing them as things that arise and pass away, it becomes my loneliness, my separation. Something like loneliness is actually a very universal experience. So if something like that arises for you, you can see, like, oh, actually, there's loneliness in many different situations in life for people. It's part of the human experience. Everything that you're experiencing is part of the human experience, right? So a little kid who is nobody to sit with at lunch, right? lonely. Someone who is an old person in a home, no one's visiting them, maybe lonely, right? Someone who is in, sent uh, overseas in the military, away from their family, 
is lonely, right? Someone who's in prison might be lonely, right? Just so many moments in which the human experience is like that. And it's constantly shifting. So loneliness, like that. Then there's joy, and it's like that. Also at that time we share joy with all these different people. Experience is just like that, like that, like that. So just connecting with that as best as we can. But in the moment, in the beginning, we're keeping it simple, right? So we're staying with the breath, we're staying with the movement of the body. So even as you're just moving around uh, during the day, you can just very gently try and uh, see uh, and notice, uh, am I present? Right? So as you're going for a walk, as you're taking a shower, right? just, just very gently notice, like, am I present? And if not, just kind of bring yourself back, right? So whatever you're feeling, the feeling of the shower, feeling of the water, you're drying yourself off, feeling of the towel. So just very gently being present. So now, of course, because of the untrained mind, the puppy dog mind, it's going to go, right? It's going to run, it's going to run, it's going to run, right? So just gently bring it back, right? So every moment that you remember to bring it back is part of this training of mindfulness. So it is actually activating this uh, antivirus program, right? It's allowing yourself to be able to see into the nature of how things really are, right? To see into beyond this idea of my knee and my knee pain to what is that really? What is that experience of sensations, of a visual, right? Of this thoughts in my mind, right? To see deeply into who we are, which then allows us to have that same connection to how life is and how everyone is. So you can practice the sense of presence and take this opportunity in these really good lab conditions to practice. And just do it as best you can also. So when I say this thing about all these different mind moments, so some of you who are perfectionists might decide, I'm going to catch every single one. Right? I'm going to get them all tomorrow. <laughs> I missed some today, but tomorrow is my day. I'm going to get them all. Right? So actually, the Buddha taught that there are so many mind moments in just an eye blink, in the snap of a finger. There are like thousands of billions of mind moments. Like consciousness arises and passes away so fast. Right? So you can just relax and do the best that you can. So just relax and notice whatever it is that is apparent to you, right? With some gentleness, with some kindness, right? Notice when you don't like what's happening, right? Notice that pushing away of experience, right? Okay. And actually the persistence, this kind of continuity of trying to be present with whatever is there in your experience is itself an act of love. So it's itself an act of love for yourself, an act of love for everyone that you will meet in the future, and an act of love for the world. So this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of liberation. So this is the path that we're on, my friends, and I'm glad to be on it with you these days. So thank you for your attention. So now we sit together for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.